Once you have Deuteronomy open, you may want to flip over to the book of Ephesians, all the way over in the New Testament, chapter 4. So Deuteronomy 11, Ephesians chapter 4. Turning the pages, that is music to God's ears. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, and from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, we pray this morning that you will give us more insight into growing up. Lord, that you will lead us to that place of maturity. Not maturity only individually, Father, but as a body, as a fellowship. We're young, Lord, as you know. We're coming up on just, just approaching three years from our first Bible study. And though we are young as a fellowship, Father, I pray that we might meet, be mature in our thinking, in our teaching, in our praying. Mature, Father, in our relationships. Mature in our love, in our unity, in our desire, Lord, to be about your business and not our own. In our hunger, Father, to do the things that please you, not that please ourselves. God, that we might be bondservants of yours, mature in your will, constant and sensitive in prayer to hear you and to know you, and not to do anything outside of what you have called for us to do. Father, I pray for maturity, and I pray this morning that you will help us to see some of these things through your word, through the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this summer in my home, we set two seemingly opposite concepts in motion. The first concept was summer chores. Kids were not thrilled about this concept, but we determined this summer, we finally got settled, the school year was over, and we settled in our house, and, and finally decided there's time that the kids really started pitching in, and not just here and there, but consistently daily. They had lists of chores, things that they had to do. More than any time prior, they've been required to do chores on a daily basis for the purpose of developing some greater responsibility and motivation and connection to the family that we all pitch in and we all work together. But the other concept, hand-in-hand with summer chores, was summer play. And to facilitate this, we bought a trampoline, which is all kinds of fun. For about 10 minutes and then I'm done. I'm off that thing. I can't go any longer than that. But the kids have lived out on that bad boy. It's a great trampoline. By the way, it's huge. It's a 15-footer, fully enclosed, called a Skywalker, and for good reason. 
That's why I only lasted 10 minutes on there. Is after jumping a few times, I realized I was higher than the enclosure. <laughs> Not a good thing. But it's right outside my office window, and so when I'm in there studying, I can see my kids out there on that trampoline 24-7, and I love to see them play. I love to see them laughing hysterically and jumping on that thing. I love to see the fun that they're having, but I also want to see them grow. I love to see them grow. Your parents with small children, it's something that, that you look forward to, but it's, it's kind of a catch-22. As your kids get older, you really miss them being little. But you enjoy something, I'm enjoying something that I never really thought about before. Real conversation. <laughs> True thing. Uh, hearing what is on my son's heart, what's on my daughter's heart. I don't, I don't know if I told you this, I may have, it's okay, I'm, I'm kind of a doting dad on this. Uh, but we were at the Mercy Me concert a um, week and a half ago or so. Up at the Linden Fair, and Hannah was. Did I tell you about Hannah at the Mercy Me concert? Good. Okay. Good. Permit me, because she's not here, to talk about her a little bit. She was sitting there just to the right of, of Cheryl, and Corey was there, and Hayden were there, and we were all listening to music, and it was great. And they got to a point in the concert where it was just worship, worship, worship. What I love about a big Christian concert is it's more about the Lord than it is the band. And that's what was going on up on the stage. And so we're worshiping. And I had my eyes closed, and I had focused on the song. And uh, Luke was there, Hayden's friend, and, and, and what was funny is Luke had said right before the concert, do you think they'll play Here I Am to Worship? And I'm like, I have no idea if they're going to play that. And they did. And so I looked down and Luke's like, yeah, you know, which is great. Nine years old and that fuck is one of his favorite songs. But as they were worshiping and were focused on the Lord and my eyes were closed, I looked up for a moment and, and there was my daughter just to the right of Cheryl standing up, arms raised in worship. Nobody else in our entire row was doing this and I started bawling like a baby because here was my little girl growing up here was Hannah doing the one thing the one area of maturity that I'm more prayerful for than anything else is my kids knowing the Lord and loving Him so much that they really could care less what anybody else around them is doing I love to watch them play but I want to see them grow up and so it is with the Lord He loves to see us play he loves to see the joy in our lives and the fellowship and the times where we're just hanging out, where we're just enjoying the life that He's created for us to enjoy. We are not, as Christians, called to be somber. And you know this. I've said this before. I mean, that the Christian who has that dour expression, the world who sees Christianity that way, something's really, there's a disconnect. When someone will come along and say, I just, I love the Lord. <laughs> oh, God is my Father. We worship every week. We're a happy fellowship. You know, I, just, I don't get that. Because God loves to see us play. He loves our joy. But He also wants to see us grow up. Because there is pleasure in that as well. There is blessing in maturity. So this morning we're going to do something. We normally do this more on Wednesday nights. And that's verse by verse through a chapter. Typically on Sunday mornings. If you've been around much, you know that I like to take a few verses or kind of dial in sometimes you know, on a specific part of the passage. We're going to look at all of Deuteronomy chapter 11. The whole chapter. Verse 1 through verse 32. Just walk through it this morning because I realized as I read through it that it's all about growing up. That there are hints and, and, and encouragements in here about what growing up entails when you want to be a child who is mature in the Father. And so let's look at a few of these things this morning. We're actually just going to start back in chapter 10, a couple verses before 11, beginning in verse 20. 
Moses is still speaking to the people. And he says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise, and He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars from heaven. Amazing. They went down 70, they came back as as numerous as the stars. Some things to note relating to growing up. Growing up, number one, I'm going to give you five or six things to jot down if you're a note taker. Growing up requires pain. It requires pain. We've heard the phrase, use the phrase, growing pains. And it's not just a physical phrase, it is a spiritual phrase. And I am here to tell you, for all the joy and and pleasure and happiness that comes with Christianity and a Christian life, there is also a guarantee of pain if you're going to grow up in the Lord. Isn't that great news? (laughs) Growing up requires pain. When did Israel grow from 70 to the number of the stars? When did that happen? When they were in Egypt. When they were in bondage, when they were enslaved, when they were in a time of difficulty and suffering, 400 years in the mud pits of slavery, and we should take note of this, growth happens in hard times. Growth requires pain. Exodus chapter 1 verse 12 says, The more that the Egyptians afflicted the Jewish people, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. We see the same principle at work in the first century church. The greater the the persecution, the more intense the growth. And for the first 200 to 283 years of the church's existence, the church was born into a place of pain. And tribulation and trial, so bad was it in fact, that there were Christians, we see this in in 2 Thessalonians, there were Christians who were thinking the tribulation had already come. Beginning to ask, are we already in the tribulation period? Because the persecution was so bad. We have no idea, gang, what that persecution is like. We don't have a clue of the intensity of the persecution of the church and yet for all the Christians that were martyred for their faith simply living and loving in the name of Christ the church grew rapidly incredibly all over the place it spread out because growing up requires pain and it's a growth principle that is so simple but is so quickly forgotten especially when we are experiencing pain ourselves. James chapter 1, verse 2, James said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How often do you hear a praise report from a Christian praising God for the awful straits they're in that day? How often do we say, Hey, I've got something, I just want to bless the Lord because my life's in shambles. (laughs) Things are not going right now. Hallelujah. We don't hear that often, and yet James says, Hey, consider it joy. If you're having hard times right now, consider it all joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter picks up on this. He says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, if you've studied Paul's life at all, you know that he didn't have momentary light affliction. 
His life was constant pain and tribulation and persecution. From the moment he accepted Christ forward, he was constantly in trouble. Constantly being kicked out of one city to the next. A couple of times left for dead after being stoned, beaten, whipped, lashed, shipwrecked. His life was an absolute mess, and yet he calls it momentary light affliction. Now why does Paul do that? How can he use words like that? Because in comparison to the weight of glory, our tribulation is nothing. By comparison to the greatness of what God has planned. And so Paul says, hey, it's light, but it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And indeed, 2 Timothy 3.16, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly. So if you don't want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you might be able to get by a little bit without a whole lot of persecution. You want to just sit in a church, go every now and then, attend infrequently, have the Bible, but leave it mostly on the shelf. Don't really pursue Jesus. Don't desire godliness. Just kind of loose, on-the-shelf Christianity. If you want that, you might not experience a whole lot of tribulation for it. When think about it, you're not going to experience tribulation for Christ if you're not speaking the name of Christ. So if that's what you want, you have that option. But Paul says, if you want to be godly, you want to grow up, you want to mature in Christ, you will experience persecution. I've asked myself the question from time to time in my life when things were going really well, am I maturing? (laughs) Because it's a little simple and easy right now. Growing up requires pain. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this any further today, but be reminded that this is not heaven in which we live. It will not be heaven. It will never be heaven here on earth until Jesus comes and we'll experience earth the way it was supposed to be when Jesus comes. But until that time, we're not going to have heaven here. We'll have our good moments, but we will not have heaven on earth without Christ. This is not the final destination. This is where we grow up. For Israel, it was the mud pits of Egypt. What is it for you? Growing up requires pain. Now, chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. Know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known, and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God. His greatness, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm, and His signs and His works which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what He did to Pharaoh's army, to its horses and its chariots, when He made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you. And the Lord completely destroyed them. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben. When the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them and their households and their tents and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord which he did. (laughs) My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. It says verse 8, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong, and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it. Verse 9, So that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses goes back and begins to again recount over and over and over their history, what had happened, what they had experienced. And he says, Your own eyes saw what God did. In the wilderness, you saw how He dealt with Egypt. You saw how He dealt with your sinfulness, Israel. You saw it. 
You experienced it. Second thing to jot down growing up requires personal obedience. Growing up requires personal obedience. Now, I know we've been talking about obedience a lot lately. In fact, Alicia came up to me on, on Wednesday night and said something that kind of shocked me. Where are you, Alicia? Are you sitting here somewhere? She here? They may not be here. Oh, don't you hate that when you call someone's name and then they're not there and then everybody knows? <laughs> well, Alicia came up to me and she said, in 25 years of church going, I've never heard a sermon on obedience. And I thought, that's tragic. That's absolutely tragic. We sing the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You will not be happy in Jesus. You will not enjoy that that pleasure, that that joyfulness, that rejoicing that I talked about. You're not going to get it without obedience. People will rail against Jesus and wonder why this whole Christian thing doesn't work. It's because you're not obeying. Growing up requires personal obedience. J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He said, I believe in the grace of God. I preach the grace of God. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We grow by the grace of God. We're going to get into heaven by the grace of God. And when we've been there 10,000 years, it will still be by the grace of God. But my friend... There are great spiritual blessings today which you are going to miss if you are not obedient to Him. Please understand that balance. It is grace that saves us. It is only grace that gets us in. It is only grace that brings us into the presence of a loving Father. Only grace. However, if we refuse obedience, we will miss blessing. We will not have all that God intends for us. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says... Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. How many um, elementary school kids do we have sitting in here this morning? Let me see you raise your hands. Elementary school kids, wake up just for a second and raise your hand so I can see you guys. Okay, good, they're drawing. Oh, what? Yeah. Okay, good. Did you hear this verse now? I'm going to read it to you one more time. It's a verse that always made me go, oh, when I was a kid. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So I was like, Jesus, why did you have to put that in the Bible? Paul goes on and says, honor your father and mother, and he tells why it's in the Bible. Because it's the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. God says there's a, there's a principle here for kids growing up. If you obey your parents, life is better for you. Boy, I learned that. <laughs> because if you disobey your parents, life ain't so good. And so obedience is an important thing. But this is so interesting to me, the idea of obedience. We want our kids to learn to obey so that they can grow up and become independent. It's not so that they'll be more and more dependent on us, but obedience, gang, is a key to growing. It's a key to maturity in our lives with our parents. It's also a key to maturity in faith in Christ. Obedience. Doing as He asks you to do, even if it doesn't make sense to you. But if the Scripture says it, if God has put it on your heart, you do it. You obey. You follow Him. Because that's what growing up requires. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, the first few chapters, we see the church just being birthed and getting about the business of obeying the Lord. And Peter and the apostles, in Acts chapter 5, along about verse 28, Peter and the apostles are in trouble again. They're in front of the Jewish leaders, 
They're in trouble for things that they have been saying and things that they have been doing and for rabble-rousing and spreading this name of this guy Jesus. And so, picking up in verse 28, it tells us, verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, this is the Jewish ruling council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, praise the Lord, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Which is exactly the point. That's right. We need to have this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We must obey God. Hey. You choose yourselves whether it's right or not to obey God, Peter says back in chapter 4. But we got to obey Him. We, ha- we can't help talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. When He tells me go, I go. When God says speak, I'm going to speak. Why? Because obedience is absolutely critical to growing up. Peter, by the way, said something interesting in there. I don't know if you caught it, but he said that the Holy Spirit is given by God to those who do what? Obey. Why don't I hear God in my life? Why am I having such trouble understanding His will for me? Why is there a silence when I pray? Why when I read the Bible am I not getting it? Maybe you should try obeying. Because Peter says the Spirit is given to those who obey. And I think given in fuller and fuller measure, which brings us to the next point, number three, growing up requires power beyond my own. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. Growing up requires power beyond my own. Beginning in verse 10, Moses is now continuing to speak to the people and he says, He says, For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot. Like a vegetable garden. Anybody water with your feet? I'll explain that in just a second. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today. To love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. And this is amazing. This is so interesting to me. This power beyond my own. Egypt. Though a very sophisticated and mighty nation at the time was dry as a bone. In fact, Egypt today, the, the water table there, it's amazing. It typically gets less than, less than one inch of rain a year. That's how little it rains in Egypt. It is a rarity if they ever get any rain. How do they survive? The Nile. The Nile River flowing through Egypt is what irrigates the land. It's the only way that they can survive. And so what the Egyptians in that day did, they have more sophisticated means of doing this now, but in that day, they used foot pumps. 
to irrigate their fields. The only way to get water into the field was to pump it out of the Nile. And it was a foot pump. And it was hard work. And it was day in and day out. Verse 10, he says, You used to sow your seed and water it with your foot, like a vegetable garden. Foot pumping. Getting the water out there. Drawing it out of the Nile. It was hard labor. Day in, day out, week in, week out. The only way to grow the land, to bring fruit on the land, was hard work. And it's an absolutely wonderful contrast between Egypt and the land of Israel. For Israel doesn't have the Nile. It has the Jordan. And by the way, if you think the Jordan is some big sprawling river, think again. It's a tiny little thing. It is not big. It's about, I mean at some points, ten feet across. It's not a huge gaping river. Israel is watered with rain from above. Egypt, the land of labor, watered with foot pumps out of the Nile. Israel is a land of love, watered by the Father from above. I want you to get this picture in your mind of the difference between Egypt and Israel because it's the same as the difference between the world and the people of God. The world game. Egypt is always a picture of the world in Scripture. We've talked about that. And so we see that Egypt was a place of hard work, no rain, nothing from heaven. You're on your own, working hard, trying to get some water into the land. But Israel, completely different, God says, it drinks water from the rain of heaven. Provided a power beyond the people, it would come down, it would be given to them. Growing up requires a power beyond my own. It's not based on my strength, pumping that water, trying to make it happen. Now, by the way, and this is interesting to me, did you notice Moses left something out of verse 13? Look at verse 13 again. It says, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with strength. The Shema. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Shema. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength or might. It's not here. Well, he was just kind of quickly running through it and maybe he forgot to put the word in. I don't think so. The Bible is very specific, gang. There's a reason why this is missing. Because God is saying, He's hinting something to us here. As you come into the land, as you obey me, as you grow up in me, you're going to need a power beyond yourself, and that power will not come by your strength. It will not come by your might. The Holy Spirit given is a heart and soul issue, not a might issue, not a power of man issue. And it's interesting, verse 14 goes on to tell us that there are two times a year when the rains will pour down on Israel. It's the same today. It's called the early rains and the late rains. Early rains and the late rains. Early rain comes in August, and the latter rains or the late rain comes in the spring. But there's something very special about the latter rains, the late rains in Scripture. Watch this. Hosea chapter 6 verse 3 tells us the following. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. Now listen. And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, the later rain, watering the earth. 
Joel chapter 2 verse 23 Joel prophesied he said rejoice O sons of Zion be glad in the Lord your God for he has given you the early rain for your vindication and he has poured down for you the rain the early and the latter rain as before and then Joel says this it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit among them in those days does that verse sound familiar to you? that's what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost 50 days after the crucifixion 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven at the Jewish feast of weeks Pentecost the Lord rained down the spring rain the latter rain His Holy Spirit was poured out on the people and Peter said to them repent each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then he says something to you and I he said the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself and we are 2,000 years we are far off but the promise is for us today the spring rain of the Holy Spirit the latter rain of God's Spirit upon us not by light not by power but by my Spirit says the Lord and growing up gang absolutely requires the Holy Spirit in our lives and it's a challenge for us in the church because regarding the Holy Spirit I'm, I'm reading a, a, an old book actually by Chuck Smith right now called Charisma versus Charismania <laughs> and in this he is seeking and has sought a balance because the church tends to either go way off in one direction and be really wild and out there or way off in the other direction and be absolutely dead and God isn't for either one the Lord wants to pour out His Spirit, but He wants His Spirit, He wants us to be grounded in His Word. He wants it to be about what He wants, not what we want. And we've got to be careful, gang, because there is an Egyptian methodology that has seeped into Christianity. We have come into the promised land of being with Jesus, and yet we're still clinging to tools that we used in Egypt, in the world. We are still using the foot pump. What do you mean? <laughs> we're pumping in the power. We're going to make it happen. Show up on this day at this time. We're going to have a conference, and at that conference, the Holy Spirit's going to show up. Really? What if He doesn't want to? What if He's busy that day? <laughs> you know, I'm convinced now. By the way, when we gather two or three in His name, He is there. But I've seen so often. I've read about recently quite a bit of just this idea that we are going to make it happen. We're going to make it happen, even with churches. Something as, as simple as church growth seminars. Is pumping in the power. We're going to come up with strategies and methodologies. And if we employ those, we can grow this church. We can make it happen. And it becomes about the power of man and not the raining down of the Holy Spirit. That's Israel methodology. The rain that comes down, the power from heaven. And I want that. I want the natural, powerful, unhindered, God has done it, non-manipulated spirit of the living God poured out in this place. I want it to happen because God has made it happen. And guess what? We'll know. You will know. It will be right. It will not be, as we've talked about before, a strange fire that makes you uncomfortable. Oh, man. <laughs> in his book, Charisma 
versus Charismania. Chuck Smith talks about as a kid growing up in a Pentecostal church, and he would sit there. And by the way, if you have that background, I'm not meaning any offense by this, but we're seeking a balance of the Holy Spirit doing what He wants to do, not what we think He should do, or not what we're pumping in the power for Him to do. And he said he would sit there and he'd invite friends to come to church because he couldn't go to dances. And he'd try to invite them to come with him. And they would sit there and then Mrs. McMurdy, oh no, she'd start breathing funny and he knew. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew his friends weren't going to get it. And sure enough, she'd breathe funny for a few minutes and then stand up and she would give a prophetic word or she would start speaking in tongues and it would freak out his friends. And he would pray. As she was breathing funny, he would begin to pray, Lord, please don't speak in tongues today. <laughs> please don't do this this morning, Father. And she'd do it anyway. And he'd go, oh, you know, and his friends afterwards would come up and go, what was that all about? And they were confused and they didn't get it. And he was confused. And he didn't get it. And gang, I think there's an awful lot of Egyptian methodology pumping in the power in the church. Because we want it so bad. It's not bad to want it. It's not bad to desire a real work of the Holy Spirit. It's not bad to hunger for healing. And to want to see the Lord. It's not a bad thing to want to hear from the Lord and know His will in our lives. The problem is when we're still using old methodology. Pumping in the power. Working it out. Making it happen. Let's stop this for a second. I want to pray. Father, we pray right now as we study. We ask right now that you would bring balance. That you, Lord, would pour out your spirit as you will. We do want the spring rain here at the bridge. We want to know of your presence. We want to walk in this door. We want to run into someone in town. We want to just have the sense that every time we're together, you are so with us in there. To gather and worship, Father, and find this place thick with your presence. That's what we hunger for. But not by our power. Pour out your Spirit, Father, as you would do it. And help us to grow up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, interesting, the next thing on Jesus or on Moses' heart is a warning. Verse 16, reading on. He says, Beware. That your hearts are not deceived. And that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. And the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And there is a principle for us today, gang. We can quench the latter rains. We can shut down the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? By following other gods. If you follow other gods, he says, you will not receive the spring rains. They're not going to come. You will miss out on the rain. And the same principle applies today. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit, which assumes that the Spirit can be quenched. Which assumes that God gives us some power, some ability to shut down His Holy Spirit. And the way we see here that Moses warns Israel that it can happen is if you turn away and you serve other gods. What other gods? Well, for Israel it was gods like Baal, the god of power, or Asherah, the goddess of pleasure, or Mammon, the god of prosperity, or Moloch, the god of practicality and pride. These gods that were already in Canaan's land. And God was warning, and Moses was warning, be careful, you're coming into a land where these other gods exist. Not truly as gods, but as idols. 
Don't follow after them. Of course, it's interesting, those same four gods are alive and well and worshipped highly today, esteemed in American culture. Same four gods, power, pleasure, prosperity, practicality, pride, these are all gods that we worship today. Oh, I don't worship any other god. My hobbies, my hungers, my want for material things, my desire for control. And we're talking about growing up. And you may be thinking, okay, Rick, but we've, we've covered this stuff before, the, the prosperity thing and the pride thing. We've covered that over the last two weeks. I got that. I picked it up. And I wonder if any of the Israelites listening to Moses at this point are going, we got it, we got it, okay, we got it. We've heard it. You've said it before. You're saying it again over and over. We've heard it. But gang, number four on your list, growing up requires patient instruction. It requires patient instruction. It's said that the teacher, not the student, is the one who truly gains the most from the teaching, and I believe it. I believe it. The time spent in studying, those of you who lead Bible studies and teach, you know the time that you put into it benefits you in a way that you can't even express to those who you're teaching. It's a great blessing to be a teacher. That's why I shared a couple weeks back that I believe we're all called to be teachers. All of us. And not teachers on the latest human philosophy, but teachers of His Word. Look at verse 18. He said, Therefore you shall impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. He's talking about tephalin and phylacteries. These are Jewish words for the little leather boxes that were strapped on the forehead or strapped on the arm. And they usually held the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, that scripture, or some other scripture. Because they took it so seriously, they wanted to bind it on their foreheads or, or on their wrists. I shared on a Wednesday night a few weeks back that it got completely out of control. The boxes kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to show people how much scripture you had on your head. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And if you look at Israel today, you will see the, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, they will have those boxes strapped on their foreheads. And it looks pretty fun. It looks like something from another planet. What they were trying to do was have the word as close as possible, and they missed the point completely missed that God was saying I want to impress my word into you and bind the word to you I want my word to be kept close at hand I want my word to be on your mind and and in your heart and so teach it, write it but here's the thing gang, you cannot do this if you're not in the word you can't do it Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you We'll have this great relationship of me doing what needs to be done in your life. If my word abides in you, and again, I'm repeating myself on this one too this morning. I've had so many people come up to me, and I even mention, I mention books every now and then I'm reading, and I do a lot of reading outside of the Bible, but I can't tell you how often someone will come up and just, this is the, this book changed my life. It changed my life. This is so, I mean, you've got to read this. Oh, this is it. Finally, someone's written a book about this. This is what I needed. And I hear it all the time, and I just keep thinking, this is what we needed. This is the great book. I would love someday to walk into a Christian bookstore and see empty shelves and a Bible. Because everything we need is right here. And as we get excited about other Christian literature, which I myself do, let me please remind you that we have the Word of God, and the Word of God is what we need, not the Word of man. So let's spend our time in the Word, in His teaching, and following and understanding what He wants us to do. He goes on and says, teach them to your sons, 
And talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, constantly. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. Mezuzahs. That's what those are called. Mezuzahs. Stick right on the doorpost of Jewish homes. You'll see them in Jerusalem today. And when we go back, I want to get one of those because they're kind of cool. But stick them on the doorpost, put a scripture in it. The idea is that the word is in your house. So that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. Growing up requires patient instruction. By the way, this passage and several similar passages in Deuteronomy are what's behind Laura Pierce's plans for our children's ministry. Just want you to know that. This is the idea. That our children would be taught the word, not just babysat. And I want to tell you elementary school kids something. You First through third graders and fourth through sixth graders, as you start classes, Bible classes on Sundays, two weeks from today, you will be in the Word. That's the point. That will be the focus. It's going to be cool. I promise you're going to love it because you can't help but love the Word of God. But this is her plans. Now, I want to take a side note here. And I know I'm... Just hang with me this morning. We're, I know we have a few more verses. We'll get done. But parents, you all need to hear me clearly on this. I love having the kids with us through worship. It's our intention that children be in the bridge during, throughout worship and all the way through communion. Even if they're making noise, even if they're squirrely, whatever, that's okay. They are learning. They are watching you worship. They're watching other people worship. Non-parents, by the way, let me just remind you, they're going to be in here with us. Get used to it. It's a good thing. It is the responsibility of the body to teach the children. And that's why they're here. And I want them here. But parents, it's not about it's not about letting the kids run wild. It's not we're not having them in here so that they can go nuts with the hot cocoa back there. It's not having them in here so that they can just do whatever. They're here for a reason. Teach them. Teach them. I have no problem throughout communion hearing parents whispering. This is what's going on here. This is what we're doing. Yeah, that's the blood of Christ. Talking to your kids. I have no problem during the teaching when I'm up here. If a son or a daughter has a question, I don't get what he said. What does that mean? And you're going, I have no idea either. Maybe he'll tell us in a few minutes. But if you share, <laughs> you share with them, talk to them, teach them, use the time. Kids will be kids, but you parents, use the time to teach them about the Lord. That's why they're here. Not because we couldn't have classes for them instead. We could. We choose not to. We want them to learn. We want them to understand. Growing up requires patient instruction. It can be painful. It requires personal obedience, a power beyond my own. Again, here's what's great about growing up. There are those moments when we recognize, hey, I have grown a little bit. Hey, I'm not cussing this year like I did last year. Hey, I'm hanging out with people that I never used to and I'm not hanging out with people that I always used to. Hey, when I'm driving home and I'm passing the bar, the Deception Pass bar over here, I keep going. I'm not stopping anymore. I don't fly off the handle at my wife and kids. I haven't fallen off the wagon. I'm actually growing. Isn't it great when you stop for a moment? and take stock of the last year and you can actually say 
I'm growing up. I'm, I'm better than I, than I was before. Look at verse 22. Moses says, If you're careful to keep all this commandment which I'm commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to them, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. And you will dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your border will be from the wilderness to Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea. No man will be able to stand before you. The Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set your foot as he has spoken to you. And I think that's awesome. You obey me. You follow me, Israel. We're going to have such a relationship that the people, when you come walking along, they will fear you. And I go, I want a piece of that. Now, understand me. I don't want people to be afraid of me. I'm not looking for people to fear me. But I do want them to see Jesus in me. I want them to be aware that I walk with confidence. That if they're going to bring up some controversial anti-Jesus issue, I will respond. I am going to talk about my Lord. I am going to bring them to Scripture. I am going to share the Ten Commandments and the way they drive us to need salvation. I'm going to talk about this stuff. And there are going to be people who, because of that, because I'm growing in the Lord, will fear me. Will fear you. They'll see you coming and they go, Oh no, here we go. Here we go again. I want people to know whom I have believed and to see that I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him to the final day, 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul writes, I want him to see Jesus in me. I'll never forget sitting down and talking to my, my pastor back in California, Pastor Floyd. Pastor Floyd was 73 years old. Always wore a white shirt and black slacks on the hottest of Anaheim days. I'd be in my shorts and my little youth pastor, you know, tank top. Hanging out, you know, and I'd walk in, I've got my flip-flops on, and here comes Floyd. Black pants, white shirt, off in a tie. And I sat down with him one time and we began talking about youth pastors who pierce their ears. Youth pastors who tip their hair. Tattoos and, and looking like the kids and... And, and I was trying to explain to Floyd because he needed to understand this. He was 73 years old. He needed to get this. I said, Floyd, look, I, I wear jeans and t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops and all that. I, I do that because I'm hanging with kids. I want them to relax around me. I, I want them to know. And, and, you know, he knew what I was implying. Floyd, get some jeans, man. <laughs> and you know what he said? Because we were talking about the morality of this. And he said, you know, Rick, what's interesting to me is that when people want to hang out, there are a lot of other people that they tend to go to. But when they're in crisis and they need the Lord, they come to me. Floyd was one of the most obedient men I've ever seen in my life. He loved the Lord. Still does, I believe. I hope so. Well, I'm sure he does. Either way, he does. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Floyd loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. And he lives for him. But Floyd is one of these guys that he walks down the street and you go, Pastor. That's what he is. He's got to be. Is that a suit salesman? I mean, it's one of the two. But he was upright and honest and straightforward. And you could see the Lord in him. And people, quote unquote, feared him. Not a fear of, uh, of you know, wanting to run away. But they respected him. And that's part of growing up. Not to look like the world, 
pumping the water out of Egypt, dressing like the Egyptians. No, looking like the Lord, living for the Lord, being what the Lord has called us to be in Him and proud of that. By the way, in all this territory that's promised to them, verses 24 and 25 talk about a huge amount of territory for Israel. Stretching all the way from the Nile River in Egypt out to the Euphrates, all of that was supposed to be Israel's. 300,000 square miles. And you Bible students know they only ever possessed 10% of that land. Even in Solomon's day, 30,000 miles square miles was all they ever lived in. But I want you to hear this. We're down to the end here. Number five, you might jot this down. Growing up results. It results in promised possession. Skip down to verse 31. It says, you're about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you to do today. But tragically, from the Nile to the Euphrates... Israel never came close to possessing what God promised. They still haven't. They're still giving up land. They never possessed the promise. Why? Because they never grew up. They never fully grew up. Now go back to verse 26 and watch this. This is awesome. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today, by following other gods which you have not known. Watch this. It shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim, and the curse on Mount Ebal. What? I want you to place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Verse 30, are they not across the Jordan west of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah opposed or opposite Gilgal beside the oaks of Morah? Two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And you can read about this in Joshua chapter 8. But here's what actually happened. When the people came into the land, they were commanded to do this, to place the blessing on one mountain and the curse on the other mountain. So here's what they did. Half of the tribes of Israel stood at the foot of Mount Gerizim. The other half of the tribes of Israel stood at the, at the base of the foothills there of Mount Ebal. In between was a valley, and in the valley stood Joshua, and the priests, and the Levites, and the leaders. So half the tribes, Mount Gerizim, other half, Mount Ebal, Joshua, and the priests, and leaders of the tribes, right there in the middle. And Joshua began reading the book of the law. And every time a law was read that was a blessing, all those who were at Mount Gerizim would shout, Amen! So be it! Hallelujah! And those, every time a law was given that was a curse, those over on Mount Ebal would shout, Amen! So be it! What a bummer to be on Ebal. <laughs> these are the cursed people. These are, that's not how it worked. It wasn't that one group was cursed and one was, was blessed. But they went through this actual physical exercise of reading the law, blessings, Amen! Curses, Amen! Amen simply being, so be it. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't want to be on Ebal's team. I like praising the Lord for the blessings. I don't really want to say amen to the curses. But listen, something else was placed on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. Something specific. Joshua chapter 8 verse 30 tells us that Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount 
Ebal. There on the mountain of cursing was an altar sacrifice. Where the curse was levied, the altar was waiting. Where the curse happened, the altar was available. And right now, spiritually speaking, our Joshua, our Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is standing between two mountains. A mount of cursing and a mount of blessing. He already stood on the mount of cursing, by the way, the Mount Ebal. Speaking spiritually, it was Mount Calvary which was the mount of cursing, that had the altar upon it. The altar of the cross on which Jesus died, the perfect sacrifice. As the Bible tells us, Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The mountain of cursing was Calvary. And Jesus was on the mount of cursing. And He said to the Father, Amen, so be it. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, as you will. Amen. So be it, Father. And he stood on the mount of cursing and took the curse. But the altar's there. The altar. On Mount Ebal, the cross. On Mount Calvary. And gang, I want you to hear this. He is coming back to the mountain of blessing. He's standing between right now. The curse has been paid for. If you'll accept His altar, His sacrifice, He will alter you. The curse has been covered. He stands in the middle, pronouncing blessing or a curse, your choice. But He's coming back to the mountain of blessing. Not Mount Gerizim, but Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us that in that day, Zechariah 14.4, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half will move toward the south. Zechariah 12.10 tells us, I will pour out latter rains, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will know. It's talking about the Jewish people. They're going to see Jesus and know Him and believe in Him in that day. Mount of cursing, mount of blessing. Where do you want to stand with the Lord? He invites you to the mount of blessing. But to get there, you have got to accept the altar of sacrifice, what He did on the cross. We are so blessed simply to belong to the Lord today. To run to the Mount of Blessing and the promise that He will return there and set foot there. With that in mind though, understand as blessed as you may be in your life today, the best is yet to be. It is still to come. That great and glorious day. So let's grow up. Let's be childlike in heart, but maturing in love for the possession has been promised. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Mountain of blessing.